The deadline for the Walk Awards for Effectiveness 2024 is approaching fast. You have until the 6th of February to enter your campaigns for our celebration of strategic brilliance and effective impact. There's 12 categories across five new regions. This is our biggest award show yet. And the great news is you just need to enter once for the chance to win it in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, announced during Cannes Lion Week. So head straight to walk.com and submit your entry by that final deadline. That's the 6th of February and be in with a chance to win the Global Walk Grand Prix and truly claim your campaign as one of the most effective in the world. The Walk Awards 2024. Strategic brilliance, effective impact. It's the award show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to The Walk Podcast, wishing all of our listeners a very happy and a very prosperous new year. My name's Alex Brownsell and I'm the head of content for Walk Media. We're here to kickstart your 2024 in style. And who better to join me than longtime Walk contributor Dan Calladine, Dentsu's head of Media Futures. Now, Dan recently co-authored Dentsu's 2024 Media Trends Report called The Pace of Progress. The report looks at three key themes, and perhaps inevitably generative AI takes centre stage, the race to monetization and the sort of growing uniformity across the media platforms, and integrity economics and the role of issues like DE&I and sustainability in media. I'm delighted to say we're going to hear about each of those three trends in detail in today's episode. But before we dive in, Dan, I'd love to know what what struck you about the, the advertising the media ecosystem over the last 12 months as you sat down to work on this report. Hi, Alex. Well, um, firstly, obviously, thank you for having me on to talk again this year. Um, it's been a really, really busy year within the media. And I'm I'm sort of addicted to all this stuff. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of media news, a lot of media business news, especially. And obviously, one of the main things people have been talking about is generative AI and how that's going to change everything. And I mean, the the report came out before we had all of the controversy around Sam Altman and uh, and OpenAI uh, a month or so ago. But even without that, it was dominating so much of the front pages and so much of the conversations that people were having having about media this year. But I think it's been a really it's been a really interesting year. I think it's been quite a troubled year in terms of things like ad revenue and in terms of the funding. Uh, if you look at thing if you look at the headlines about TV companies, you know, a lot of people, as I say, have faced a very challenging time. We've had lots of great TV, lots of great films and things like that. But I think, you know, the ad revenue is going to be higher next year, which is which is good news. And we've obviously seen things starting to come back. So cinema is an obvious example where cinema still is below what it was in 2019. But obviously this year you had the extraordinary success of both Barbie and Oppenheimer and um, Super Mario Brothers as well. And so I think I think... And I think that sort of shows with quite a lot of media, there's a lot of interest in it. There's a lot of discussion about it. But I think we're waiting or we have been waiting this year for some of the ad spend to come back. But next year, it looks like it definitely is. Yeah, agreed. It's been, a, I think, an up and down year in media and in terms of the success of some businesses. But um, I'm sure we'll we'll unpack some of that as we as we work our way through some of the trends from your report. And um, as I said, perhaps inevitably, the place that we will start, the place that so much discussion has gone over the last twelve months and will inevitably this year, um, is generative AI. So, so what were your conclusions around gender, generative AI? 
well, we're quite lucky in a way in that we're at, at such a point in the, the cycle of it in that we've, we've really just been able to say, this is going to be really interesting. This is something which is definitely happening. People are going at 100 miles an hour on this sort of stuff. There's so much development happening. But at the time that we were writing this and putting it together, there weren't all that many actual examples of things that brands were doing that we could talk about. But obviously, um, and and in fact, when we look at this, we we update it pretty regularly to look to see all the new things that have been happening. And we basically looked at things like search. So there've been lots of things happening around search with you know both Bing and with Google, both expanding what they're doing, how they're trying to let generative AI sort of potentially revolutionize the search experience. But with both, they're still very much work in progress, still very much testing. Um, Google has recently expanded what it's doing around generative AI and search into, I think it's more than 120 markets now, but no European market. So over here, we haven't had a chance to play with it, but I have had um, conversations with colleagues in the States and we've been, you know, they've been sending me screen grabs and things like that to show this is what it would look like as an example of a search in this category or something. These are the sorts of things that we might expect around things like, um, you know, food advertisers and those sorts of things as well. So there's a lot of stuff happening, um, but I think 2024 is really going to be the, year, be the year when we start to see lots of campaigns start to very openly use the technology and potentially, um, yeah, protect, I mean, people either, I suppose, making a thing of it or potentially being caught out by not declaring that things are generated by AI. It's really interesting that where people like TikTok and people like um, Instagram are starting to give their their users AI tools and their advertisers AI tools, they're essentially watermarking them so that you can actually see, you know, this is created by so-and-so. And if you use the, um, the Bing Photo Creator, which uses the DALI software, to create pictures, it has has a little thing in the corner saying this was created with so and so and stuff. I think next year we're going to see an awful lot of, or, or, or at least some creative work, certainly stuff for smaller screens, being created using technology. But I think what we're also likely to see, um, or you know, maybe we won't we won't actually see it, but certainly behind the scenes, it will be involved in a lot of things in terms of strategy and planning and trying to understand consumer insights more quickly and better and things like that as well. Could I um, could I just come back to that point that you made earlier about search and generative AI search, which I think is the first area that we maybe started seeing a bit of um, bit of interest, bit of traction around this technology in in, in the advertising and the media space. And it, it strikes me that 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 generative AI has sort of so far been proven to be better at being maybe creative than it has at being accurate. And we've had the whole issue of hallucinations. Does it feel like where search was at the vanguard, maybe search has sort of dropped down the pecking order a bit in terms of the where this technology is going to be deployed? Yes, yeah, so I think I think there's some big issues around search. And I think it's quite possible that certain sorts of searches will work better than others. I think some searches are quite descriptive. I think I mean, the classic thing with search is if you said, if you put into one of the search engines, what is the best such and such, then it's pretty much a mess because it's a, it's a combination of who's best at, um, your, who, who's willing to pay the most, but also who's best at their search optimizations for certain sort of terms and those sorts of things as well. But I think um, potentially generative AI might be able to 
look through a number of different reviews and then give you an answer like for what you're looking for this would be the best car for you to buy given that you are you know given that you're you're you have this many family members and and things like that so i think potentially that's the sort of thing where it could be quite useful but i think um i i was reading something today about uh that, that was doing some analysis on health recommendations or answers to health related questions that they were doing and i think the the summary from that was um you can't rely on this for those sorts of things so i think i think there are lots and lots of different sources of sorts of search and i think um it's quite possible maybe for the sort of descriptive or the comparative searches that this might start to come through maybe before the you know what is the answer to this search i mean there, there was always a thing in the early days of chat gpt there were lots of people who used to like to try and fool it by asking it maths questions and things like that and it was quite easy to to get it to make mistakes and get it to make very obvious mistakes and things and so i think as you say it has these hallucinations where it doesn't necessarily know the answer it potentially comes up with something that it thinks might be quite convincing and that's obviously a, a, a difficulty with things like search yeah it's always quite fun um seeing what chat gpt thinks about you um and and some of the sort of random um the random conclusions it may leap to that 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 are sort of credible they sound credible but um but yeah that involve you having maybe worked for somewhere you never worked for or written a paper that you've certainly had nothing to do with um and it, yeah i mean obviously i think you're absolutely right in terms of that that deployment in things like um creative and 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 we, we seem to be seeing a lot more of that happening but uh, just to return to the point you were making about maybe where it's going to be used generative ai and things like strategy and and and, and that kind of part of of the business what, what are you seeing there i mean as an agency we're developing tools with partners around um things to help us to do things more efficiently basically you know more quickly um you know to sort of quickly come up with with ideas and quickly come up with you know thought starters and and, and things for sprints and brainstorms and uh, and workshop sessions and things like that so we're developing a number of tools as i say with with different partners where we're looking at the sorts of things that we do how can we simplify this how can we um allow one person to do this where it might have taken you know previously more people doing things but but really just try and get things done more quickly so you can ideate you can test an idea and then you could move on to something else or you know you or you can discover yes in fact this is the idea that we need and therefore how can we then make this idea better and how can we do these all these things much more quickly um and in our um year in media end of year 2023 podcast one of the things we talked about um was the the sort of renaissance the revival of meta which um was perhaps a story that not that many people saw coming um at the start of the year and one of the big drivers um, seemingly of, of that company's recovery and, and, and return to sort of really quite accelerated growth has been the investment in AI. And I think one of the, the, the sort of phrases that you use in the report, I believe, is sort of uh, generative optimization or, or how you're looking at how generative AI technology uh, is moving into the media field. I'd, I'd lo love to know a bit more about that. That's right. So quite a lot of the, uh, quite a lot of the big platforms are effectively letting the ai loose on, on on a lot of their analytics so i mean one way one way to think of it is um the, the case from a few years ago where google deepmind won awards because they were able to train 
their their AI to play the game Go, which is a much more complex game than chess. And it was they were able to you know effectively give it the rules, and it would be making decisions that no human would make because they would seem completely irrational to us. But actually, they could win the game as a result of that. So that's the analogy, effectively, of what could be happening within ad tech at the moment, where you have all these different pieces of data, including things like um, you know what the creative is like and how the creative performs to different audiences, and you then set the machinery, you, you set the technology loose on on a network, and you say, "This is the ultimate objective we're after. Do whatever you can to actually increase this number, to actually make." make the the number of conversions higher. And so what Meta says is they see something like 20 to 30% increase in ROI as a result of doing that simply by letting the technology on its own, you know, just um, effectively make a lot of these decisions. So as a client, what it means is you have to cede quite a lot of control to them in that you give them creative assets and they but they could potentially tweak them in such a way almost like i mean i and, and again as another sort of analogy i almost think about um putting a different sort of filter onto an instagram picture or where there's ai built into the camera in your phone it automatically knows what you know what sort of lighting what sort of coloring will make most people like this picture better and things like that so it's it's almost doing a version of that but ultimately you know, without necessarily understanding the process of advertising, what it's done, it, what it's what it's doing is it's taken all the different inputs and saying we want the output to be as high as possible. And you can see how this could work. And Meta has a version of that. Um, the Meta one is called Advantage Plus, and they apparently have something like a ten billion dollar run rate in terms of annualized ad revenue from this this performance medium um, across the, across their different platforms. But you know, Alphabet has has a version of it as well, and Amazon has a version of it as well. And I think a lot of the ad tech companies will have a version which is very similar. And it depends a lot on sort of the level of data that they've got, and the um, and also I think the ability to sort of see the conversion within the platform as well. So if you can see something actually being sold on the platform, then that's a, obviously a very strong conversion to use versus something that might just be an impression or a click or something. So I think we're going to see an awful lot of that happening over the course of next year. And I think um, performance campaigns will become more and more effective as a result of this new technology. Yeah, it, it certainly feels like the industry is going to have to sort of learn how to uh, navigate and use these sort of technologies. Because I think, you know, uh, I'm not sure if this is necessarily a phrase used in the report or not, but they, they are sort of advantage plus for instance. It, it's kind of a black box. We don't really know what's happening inside. Um, for brands, there feels like an element of um, a leap of faith uh, in, in using some of those technologies. Yeah, it, it is. And with all these things, there are cases where it will work and there are probably cases where it won't work as well. But because it's a black box, if something goes wrong, you don't you don't really have the the power to look under the bonnet to actually understand why it didn't work in this case. The the black box element of it means that there's a lot of things that are unknown. And when that's working, that's obviously fine. But when that's not working, then you're at a disadvantage from that. Okay, right. Well, let's move on to the second theme uh, in the report, and that is the race for monetization. Uh, can, can you just explain a little bit the concept behind this theme? Yes. So what's happening is that 
a lot of the digital platforms are changing quite quickly. I think this evolution's happened over the last few years or so, but effectively they're all becoming much more competitive with each other. And they're also trying to monetize in more and more ways. And the reason for this really is that um, we've gone through this sort of this time within digital advertising where ad spend has been growing enormously. But what we're seeing for the next three years is instead of double digit growth, growth in digital ad spend falling to something like 6% a year. So obviously 6% is still very good. Obviously 6% is still a rate of growth that other media would be very, very happy with. But historically within digital, they're used to growing much more quickly simply because budgets have been, you know, sort of transitioning to digital. So there's been more money on the table. Uh, so what we're seeing is among the big platforms, greater competition between each other um, but also what they're trying to do is developing new business models to get more money out of, uh, you know, out of their end users in many cases. So you have things like the, the premium accounts on things like X, the premium accounts on things like Snapchat and Meta. Um, but then also what they're doing is they're just increasing the ad load. So when I go onto something like Instagram, you don't really notice it until until you until you do and then and then it's sort of all you can see but when you go on to something like meta and you're looking at stories quite often there are now two ads in a row between your friend's stories and so effectively over the last few years what they've been doing is gradually increasing the ad load another another example of this one is um is amazon and the whole retail media piece in that effectively these were places where ads didn't really used to exist you didn't really get ads within the Deliveroo app or within the Uber app, but you didn't really get ads uh, that much on Amazon. And yet in the last four quarters, Amazon uh, generated, I think it's $42 billion in ad revenue. And this is, you know, and it didn't really exist about five years ago. And in fact, they've done an amazing trick because nobody really complains about the quantity of advertising on Amazon because it just all seems to fit so, you know, fit in so well. And in fact, it doesn't feel like it's damaging the experience of being on Amazon. But but actually, when you think about it, you do have to scroll through, you know, quite a few product ads um, and listings when you're looking for the things that you want. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right on on Amazon. But I think what's interesting is that I don't think there's, there's been a real sense of a user backlash about the ad load rising on platforms like Instagram that you mentioned. I certainly haven't seen anything particularly myself. Um, so so that that frog is is very gently, nicely being boiled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. That that's a that's a really good good way to think about it. And I mean, obviously, there are still people, or there is still a lot of ad blocker usage. And when I've been talking to people about this, you know, that that has been one of the main questions of this is going to push more people to ad blockers. But actually, as you say, because it's happened so gradually, I mean, there's been far more of a sort of sense of outrage or a sense of this has changed, you know, the platform has changed when they essentially switched much more to an algorithmic feed rather than just seeing posts from all of your friends. I think people just, it, it feels, particularly on things like Instagram, it feels like people have accepted that there are a lot of ads there and you, you've just got used to them basically. And seemingly brands uh, don't seem to be, you know, I think if, if for instance, um, I, I, you know, ITV in the UK suddenly doubled its ad load, um, there'd obviously be a huge amount of backlash from different parties and including from brands who, who would yeah. perhaps be, um, you know, feel that they were suffering as a result. 
I, again, I haven't sensed that brands are annoyed by the increased ad load either. I don't think so. But I think also it's really, really important to make sure for brands to make sure that um, that they're buying in the best locations, that they're taking an awful lot of care over their buying. We we have um, some work that we've been doing for several years called the Attention Economy, where effectively what we're doing is we're working with partners who do things like eye tracking so that we can actually see when an ad is appearing on a certain platform, you know, whether it be on on TV or um, in game or in social media or even with audio, we can actually measure some of the the advertising in, in test cases and stuff like that to make sure that it is, is actually being noticed and people are actually, um, you know, their eyes are dwelling on it or if it's if it's an audio ad, they're actually paying attention to it. So it is very important um, to think about this sort of this sort of analysis when you're doing your uh, your planning and buying, but what we, what we've seen is that um, more and more of our clients are interested in this because they do understand that the level of clutter is is increasing. But I think also um, it's one of those things where, as you say, it's happened quite slowly, and everybody knows what Instagram is. Everybody knows what TikTok is. It feels like a good environment for your advertising because it is very brand friendly it is very brand safe a lot of people go to these platforms for inspiration or because they're you know they want to be inspired basically either by seeing great things that their friends are doing or potentially new products that, that their favorite brands have got out or something that might answer a problem that they've got or something as well so it's one of these things where as you say it's increased gradually over time and people buy into the idea that advertising works really, really well on these platforms. But you do, you do need to be cautious because the the load has increased. And if there's 30% more advertising, then potentially that's 30% more competition from other competing brands for the eyeballs that you're trying to reach. Oh, one of the other topics you mentioned in, in this uh, section of the report is um, a growing kind of I'm not sure what the right word is, homogenization in a way of the platforms, um, that they are, as you say, they're, they're kind of copying uh, maybe the best bits of one another's environments. And actually um, for brands, I don't know if there's a sense that actually um, we're just talking about audiences here and there there is um, less to, to, you know, to sort of consider when advertising on one platform versus another in terms of environment and and some of the native cues that they may previously have had to worry about. Yes, I think I think we've sort of come to a, a particular point within the state of apps as well. In that, you used to—I mean, certainly in the in the early days of smartphones, basically for an app to to, to break through, it had to have something that was unique. And the classic examples, uh, Snapchat, which had the disappearing messaging, and then a few years later, um, TikTok, which had the full screen videos that you could just swipe up and see another. And the engineering was so good that it would just load immediately. We, we've had a phase where basically, for an app to come, for an app to to break through, it had to be offering something significantly different. But then, as with an awful lot of service models, as soon as somebody does something that everybody likes, it's very easy for other people simply to to adopt the same thing. And you know, you see this with financial services and things like that. It's hard to be, it's hard to be original for for quite a long period of time so we've got to this point now where all of the apps effectively use similar sort of features to each other and from a consumer point of view this is actually a good thing in i can download pretty much any app onto my phone and i'll know how to use it 
from the start because they all use the same combination of swipes and taps and 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 things like that they all effectively have a like button they all effectively have like a like a move on please button and and things like that so it's it's quite a good thing in terms of the user experience but the the fear and again this sort of comes down to the attention economy work that we do the fear potentially is that if everything looks the same then your brand might just look the same on everything as well and if everything starts to look the same and there's there's examples of um you know how cars how a lot of cars look the same and how a lot of kitchens look the same and stuff like that the 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 problem is with potentially is people sort of eventually tend all to you you know all to sort of look the same behave the same and that sort of stuff as well so i think for brands they need to be really they need to make sure they're being really distinctive they need to make sure they're very very definitely distinguishable from their competitors but also on the different platforms they're doing something which is recognizably them rather than recognizably this is tiktok or this is instagram or something so so they they need to be um a, a sort of differentiated on those platforms i mean from a brand point of view it's actually a you know it can be an advantage as well in that we don't need to make separate creative for snapchat or separate creative for instagram or separate creative for tiktok or x anymore because everybody will take a you know effectively a rectangular video ad but the problem is if all of the canvases look the same, you need to make sure that the art you're doing on top of the canvas looks really, really distinctive and people immediately know that it's you rather than, you know, just blending into the almost infinite content on the platform itself. Okay, well, now we're going to look at the third and final of the trends identified in in the Pace of Progress report. And this looks at integrity economics, another sort of intriguing title. Could you give us a little bit of explainer about what you were looking at here? Yes. So this really leads on from the, the previous section. So we know from the previous section that all the platforms are really, really keen to monetize in any sort of way that they can, including, as I say, developing new business models and stuff. Obviously, we're also facing a lot of the same economic constraints that the platforms are facing. Our clients are facing the same sort of constraints. And we're all trying to grow through what's been a very difficult four years, ultimately. Um, But within this context, it's also really important to think that things like diversity and inclusion, things like sustainability, things like brand safety could almost be seen as a distraction in your pursuit of endless growth, in your pursuit of profit, you know, um, trying to maximize your profits, trying to maximize your revenues. So the point we're trying to make with these three trends within this section is that actually these things can be a source of growth. These things can be the things that help you to grow because they're just things that are going to be even more important for you to do in 2024 than they have even been in 2023. Um, so, for example, with the diversity piece, the argument we make with that is that you can't really argue that the world has become a much more diverse place over the last few years. I mean, in terms of things like in terms of things like racial identity, but also in terms of things like how people identify around their gender and those sorts of things. And we've actually seen some really interesting media data. Um, so, or, or one thing that sort of influenced us, influenced us when we were thinking about this trend was the was a recent stat from Ofcom where they said I think it was the number of programs that had more than four million viewers had halved in the last 10 years or so in the UK. And the point is that 
many people now in the UK have, you know, have TV on demand, have this almost infinite um, library that they can choose from when they decide, you know, when, when they want to watch something in the evening. They're now able to choose what they want to choose and they're particularly choosing uh, to to watch things which feel more authentic to people like themselves or feel right for them to be watching at that particular time. We also see this. In fact, Netflix released a whole bunch of uh, data last week. And this was also very evident in that because I think of their top 100 programs, something like a huge number of the top 100 Netflix shows in a six-month period were not in the English language. A huge number were, were in other languages. And because it's a completely global service, again, people are choosing partly, you know, because they, they want to watch things that they can just listen to without watching subtitles or, or aren't, you know, dubbed for them, but also that they want to be watching people who look like them and listening to people who listen look like them and, and things like that as well and we also see this with music so there, there was also some analysis um of i think it was spotify data where essentially what they said was that um while we all listen to the same sorts of platforms like spotify while we all listen to the same sort of genres like pop and hip-hop increasingly people are choosing voices artists from their own language from their own community to listen to and so eventually the point the point we're trying to get to with this with media is that if you're producing a campaign, one way to think about diversity is you want to be as authentic as possible to the people who are going to be on the receiving end of the campaign, the people you're you're trying to address. So just as inclusivity means you're not in excluding anybody, if you're potentially producing multiple versions of a campaign or multiple, you know, slight edits to a campaign, it can potentially feel um, much more authentic to different sorts of communities seeing it. And this is something where, again, we go back to generative AI because generative AI potentially can make this much easier to do than it could have done before. We've been using things like dynamic content optimization for the last few years or so. Um, but if you suddenly have a technology where you could automatically produce 500 pieces of creative that are slightly different to each other, that appeal to slightly different audiences or slightly different groups or, or, or whatever, you know, all around the world, then that's something that could potentially um, make a campaign feel more authentic or feel more real to different sorts of people. But obviously, you need to do this incredibly carefully. And obviously, you need human moderation, you need human oversight to make sure that you're genuinely showing an authentic, an authentic portrayal of a group rather than a stereotype portrayal of a group. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that even within um, a channel like TV, which still has pretty good reach, there is a fragmentation within that because different audiences within the overall audience or subgroups are, 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 are focusing on different areas of content. And I thought the Spotify data was absolutely fascinating because it sort of put into context why, you know, it sort of feels like Groundhog Day that every year the, the most listened to artists are always the same people, Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, et cetera, et cetera. But actually that's because a lot of listening is going to places where, you know, people like me maybe aren't listening. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sort of uh, at the front end of, 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 of my Mexican hip hop or, or, yeah. or of my <laughs> K-pop or whatever it might be. And, and that actually that there's been a huge amount of fragmentation, even within mass media, like television, like music, that, brings a lot of complexity to the table for marketers. But as you say, the technology could potentially help to solve. I mean, that's the thing. There's so much fragmentation at the moment. You can look at all of your colleagues 
Spotify visualizations and things like that and not record, not, not know something like 80% of the artists that they've been listening to and things like that simply because the culture is, I mean, it's so easy for people to create now, you know, the, the culture is so, so diverse, but also people have increasingly diverse tastes as well. But, but effectively, effectively what we're sort of saying is the thing about diversity is trying to appeal to people um, in, as, in as authentic a way as possible, trying to not be prescriptive, trying to not be one, one size fits all, but really trying to create lots and lots of different versions of things that different people, you know, that might appeal to different sorts of people and things. And we, I mean, we've seen this quite a long time with brands doing lots and lots of different versions of creatives and things. I think there was a case a few years ago where Amazon Echo, uh, they produced something like a hundred different versions of, versions of a 20 second ad or something. And some of them went viral and some of them didn't, but presumably all of them were, were viewed to some degree. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel like um, what with what we're seeing with um, certain elements of measurement changing, identity changing, uh, you know, in terms of identity measurement and the the, the sort of mass personalization that companies talked about maybe a few years ago is becoming harder to achieve in a sort of the, the privacy regulation environment. But that so maybe the, that aim, that aspiration for mass one to one communications has sort of been replaced by. A different kind of relevancy that that it's sort of an authenticity perhaps is is a good word to describe that rather than um you know the sort of minority report knowing exactly who everybody is and, and talking to that individual on an individual basis yeah i think so and you can do a lot around the context as well so you know we, we've been talking about spotify playlists and things like that the sort of person listening to this sort of playlist might like a message in this sort of way and things like that i remember um quite a while ago talking to a relatively early AI company and what they were able to do was to make audio advertising, you know, almost use like a similar number of beats per minute as the track that had preceded the advert in the playlist and things like that. And so it's almost like, you know, almost personalizing to a context or something. Um, and this is the sort of thing where it doesn't use any personally identifiable information, but it's the sort of thing, again, that AI might... Um, make much more possible than it is now. Uh, one final point in the in this section of the report, you also, I mean, you've mentioned attention and the attention economy uh, ongoing project, and you link it to what, another one of the big uh, themes that we see growing in the media industry, and that's the the role of media in uh, climate change and in emissions, and and how attention can maybe help uh, with that particular problem. Um, could you explain a bit more about that? Yes, sure. So in addition to working on attention, we've also been doing quite a lot around sustainability for quite a few years. And this year we've um, produced a tool called the Media Carbon Calculator. And what it effectively does is it helps our clients look at their campaigns, whether they be on, on digital media or on, on other channels, and really try to work out the carbon cost of the campaign not simply the ad delivery, but potentially, as we would say, from cradle to grave. So, you know, the assets being produced and, and things like that. So to try to effectively measure the carbon cost of a campaign that's being being run for a client, um, trying to benchmark it with other things which are happening with, with other sorts of activities they've done, but then also try to advise in terms of how they can mitigate the the impact of the campaign. So, 
you know, there's quite famous things like using smaller file sizes or using shorter video lengths, or even there are technologies now where instead of ad serving, where an ad is loaded entirely as soon as you get to a page, it's thing called ad streaming, where basically the ad is streamed for as long as you're on that particular part of the page. And that again, that that generates less carbon. There's also um, things like, uh, you know, using publishers who have net zero commitments. So they might be using things like um, renewable energy to power all of the things that they're doing and those sorts of things. So, so, but in addition to these sorts of steps, another thing that we're thinking should be really important is again, the idea of the, the attention economy and planning for attention. Because one of the things that makes a big difference with digital campaigns is the sheer number of spots which are bought. And traditionally, I think quite a lot of people have, you know, you've bought for reach. So you've been buying um, quite a lot of impressions in quite a lot of different pages, quite a lot of the long tail, as you call it, of a campaign. What our theory is, and we're currently uh, in the process of testing this with clients, is that effectively, if you're buying to try to optimize, try to maximize your attention, then you're buying better, but you're potentially buying less as well. So you're buying fewer of the spots on, um, you know, as I say, the long tail sites, potentially the less expensive spots. But the point might be with some of those, they might not even be viewed by anybody. So they might be generating carbon, but not actually seen. So that's obviously, uh, that's obviously a complete waste within the campaign. So the theory is, that if you do plan for attention, then you've not only got a very visible, very effective campaign that people are noticing, people spending a lot of time with, but also is having the impact it's meant to have. But at the same time, because you're buying fewer individual spots, you're generating less carbon as a result of that. And that's this, this is something to say that we're working on. I know that um, other agencies are also working in a similar sort of vein. So it seems to be something which is resonating within the industry. Yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think it's going to be a big area um, of, of research, as you said, um, over the coming 12 months and, and, and a walk. We're definitely going to be keen to find out how um, it's going. So we look forward to hearing the results when they're available. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that is all we have time for today. So thank you, Dan. And I, for one, am already looking forward to our next conversation about your 2025 predictions, but one thing at a time first, I suppose. Now, we have a huge amount of exciting content coming up on the Walk Podcasts over the next few weeks, starting with a three-part series looking at the regional trends in the industry in North America, EMEA, and Asia-Pacific. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you like what you've heard, please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening.